How are you? Good. Good. It's good to see your faces. Hey. Good. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, moment of weakness. I uh, shaved it off. Uh, so we're in the middle of a series uh, called Why Church. We're just talking about the church and what we do, why we do what we do and what we're here for and that sort of thing. And for the last four weeks, we've been saying that the place that God has chosen to display his glory is within a community of people called the church. And we said that our mission, vision, and everything that we do here at the fellowship Uh, Every aspect of life here works around this statement, that the mission and vision of the Upper Room Fellowship is uh, to transform lives, to transform communities through knowing God, sharing life, and serving others. In other words, we are about making disciples through worship, community, and service. Last week we looked at worship. Today uh, I wanted to look at community. Um, And if you are into sociology at all, you know that we live in a pretty interesting time to study human relationships. Uh, Connectivity is easier now than it has ever been. You can make connections to people more easily and and quickly than you've ever been able to make relationships before. It doesn't require a lot of depth. It can be quick. You You can let people know the most useless, worthless bits of information about your life if you desire, very easily. You know, you can take a picture of your sampler platter that you ordered at Chili's and then tweet it to all your friends so they can be jealous of your mozzarella sticks. You know, it's very easy. But here's what sociologists are finding. Here's what the study of human relationships is revealing. That although we are more uh, connected than we have ever been with more people than we have ever been, uh, despite the fact that it is easier to find people who we share common interests with than it it has ever been, we feel more alone and more unknown than any time that has ever been measured in the history of humans. So, something has gone wrong with how we define community and how we function in relationships. Now, at the, at the simplest level, the problem with our relationships, the reason we, why so few of them are long-lasting, is because they are built on commonalities that change. And those commonalities, as those commonalities change, so does the relationship. You know, probably the easiest place to see this is as you kind of transition from out of one stage of life to the next stage of life. So, so when Katie and I got married, we had these married friends, and we had we had single friends, and we'd get calls at you know 9 p.m. at night with an invitation to come out or go you know go over, and our answer was almost always, yeah, yeah, we're in. So we would we'd go out and play, you know, get in at two, sleep till 11 and kind of start the day. That's where we were in life when, at the time we got married. Uh, we were young. And then we had our first child. And then all of a sudden, all that began to change. You know, we would get angry at you if you called at nine because you might have woken her. You know, then, then when, when people did call to invite us to things, the answer was always, you know, no, but why don't you come to dinner and leave at eight? You know, <laughs> because... You know, people without kids don't quite understand how it works. They'll say, well, just get a sitter. Well, the sitter isn't going to get up at 6 in the morning when the baby wakes up. So, you know, we can go out till 2, but four hours later, there's a baby screaming one room over. 
So, so again, come to dinner, leave by eight. So what ends, ended up happening with those relationships as we kind of started having children, our, our availability began to wane. And um, we're still friends with those people, but the commonalities that we had at one point, which was this kind of freedom of life, that, that changed. You know, I'm not saying like having kids is a prison. If you have kids, you know there's a delight in there. But life changes. So our relationships change as our commonalities change. People rally around hobbies. But life has a way of taking your hobbies from you. Okay, so I've known people who holds, whose whole relationship is built upon the fact that they can run together. You know, they get together and they run. While they run, they talk about family and stuff. But as you get older, stuff starts breaking. You know, you tear, you tear an ACL, get in the mail, you know. And you're turning to dust like you were made of dust. Right? So, so it's just a matter of time. So now, since you don't have that shared experience, connectivity becomes difficult because you had this kind of natural place where you connected. Even in church, some of us try to build relationships on, you know, certain commonalities that sometimes aren't there. Um, there are people whose testimony I cannot relate to. They love the same God I love, and they have been transformed by the Lord, but our relationship can't be built upon some shared experience of life before Christ. Because I have, you know, I have very good friends who are born in church, who have never known life outside of church, and have never known life without pursuing the Lord. And then I have friends who were saved straight out of kind of the thug life. You know, I never injected black tar heroin into my eyeballs you know i never have woken up in an el camino in mexico that's not my story right i can celebrate god's grace in it but it's not mine Uh, if it's yours i would love to sit down and talk to you about that but it's just not me so people are all over the map here some of us got saved from religion some of us got saved from outright rebellion so we've been saved from different backgrounds. So the basis of our relationships is a shared commonality, but it's not what we might kind of typically think. So let's start out, uh, set this up out of Second Corinthians 5, and about what the basis of our relationships is and why it's so important. <clears throat> so this is a letter of Second Corinthians, a letter to the church of Corinth, and if there's ever a more dysfunctional church, in the history of Christendom, than the Church of Corinth, I'm not aware of it. They get nothing right. They butcher spiritual gifts. They butcher grace. They literally celebrate a man who's sleeping with his father's wife and go, oh, look how gracious and good God is that this can happen and it's cool. You know, they are just kind of the definition of dysfunctional, and yet Paul never disowns them. Uh, continues to consider himself their father. He loves them. He rebukes them. He encourages them. He edifies them. Uh, yells at them quite passionately at times. And through it all, he is compelled by love for this dysfunctional group of people. And uh, we're going to read why, starting in verse uh, 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So the basis for our relationship with one another as the church of Christ comes down to this. Uh, You and I have this one thing in common. All of us have sinned. No one is completely innocent. And all of us are in need of a righteousness that goes beyond our own. And and we we have found that righteousness in Jesus. That's what we have in common. 
So whether you grew up in the church and have never cussed outside of the one that you made up that one day, you know, or you cussed like a sailor, whether you're, uh, you've, you've never been high or you were high last night, whether you've never missed a Sunday morning or this is your first Sunday here, we all have this in common. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in our acts of righteousness found that righteousness to be lacking. And Christ has filled in the gap with his righteousness. With his life, with his death, with his resurrection. He has purchased us anew. He has reconciled us to himself in Christ. So the commonality we share is something that never changes. We are sinners in need of grace. And that grace has been extended to us in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And that foundation informs how our relationships operate. So uh, flip over to Romans 12, verse 1. Or I think it's Romans 12, 9, actually. Sorry. <clears throat> Let's walk through how these relationships should operate. How do our relationships flesh themselves out as the gospel, as our foundation? So let's look. Romans twelve nine, correct? Yeah. It says, love must be sincere. This means love without hypocrisy. Okay, so, so here's one of the problems that a church can fall into if it's not careful. It's not hard to learn Christianese. Right? It's not hard to learn how Christians are supposed to talk, uh, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, when we're supposed to raise our hands, and how we're supposed to behave, and then just play the part. You don't have to have any real love for the Lord to, to play the part. You just pretend you're all right when you're not, and you pretend that you're near to God even though you're not, and you create an external, external image that is not an internal reality, and it's hypocrisy, and it is completely unnecessary. If the basis of our relationship is that all have fallen short of the glory of God, if that is the foundation upon which our relationship is founded, then why should it surprise anyone that I'm lacking? You know, It shouldn't surprise anyone that I struggle with the flesh. It shouldn't surprise anyone that there are times that I wrestle with sin. The whole nature of our relationship with one another is built on this fact. So, so why would you ever need to pretend that you're more than you are when this whole thing is built upon the premise that it isn't about you, but it's about his righteousness? The gospel sets you free from the slavery of having to make yourself prettier than you are, look better than you are. You know, that's why if you were here a couple weeks ago and heard Ralph's testimony, it, it was so awesome. He just got up in front of a couple hundred people and said, I was addicted to pornography for 30 years. Where else does that happen? You know, it doesn't happen at work. How was your weekend? I don't know. I blacked out and woke up with blood all over me. I don't know. Might have killed somebody. We'll find out. You know, I watched the news and didn't see anything. That doesn't happen. Why would a man share that about his life? He doesn't even know some of you. you know, how does he know that you're not going to go spread that around? I'll tell you why. He doesn't care if you spread it around. Because what was his shame is now God's glory. This is who I was, but Christ has loved me and has rescued me. He has redeemed me. Jesus didn't go, hey, you know, get this stuff straightened out and then we can talk. That's not how Jesus acts. All of your 
trash, all your junk. It was future junk when he died on the cross. Okay? You haven't surprised him. So, you know, maybe you sit in here every week and feel unwanted, unworthy, unlovable. Can I just tell you straight up, if that's you, you're believing a lie. Okay? The cross of Christ is evidence that God is well aware of your shortcomings and failures. And yet still has extended grace and mercy for those who would submit themselves to it. Love must be sincere. That leads us to the next line. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. So not only does community create safe environments for us to struggle well, but it also makes war against sin. Now, there, are, there is a personal responsibility you have to fight the sin that you can see in yourself. Okay? But here's the community aspect of it. Right? There isn't anyone in this room who doesn't have a blind spot. Right? So who doesn't, have, you know, who doesn't have some area of their life where there's this remnant of flesh, where there's this area that they're not fully surrendering to God, where they're not fully trusting God? And, you know, I'm not expecting you to know what it is right now because it's a blind spot. By definition, you don't know what it is. And since it's true that we all have it, how important is it to have brothers and sisters around us who are willing to engage us and go, you know, hey man, I love you, but I think this is an issue. And no one should, no one should enjoy that process. If you like confrontation and pointing other people's out other people's faults, then it isn't for you. Understand? You disqualify yourself. But the most weak form of love there is is the type of love that sees uh, a loved one in danger and simply hopes it works out for them. So it's not it's not judgmental or mean of me to engage my children when they're doing things that are dangerous for them. I don't watch my kids play in the street in our neighborhood just hope that it works out for their best. You know? I know that's dangerous, but look how happy they are. You know? And it's probably going to end badly, but maybe not. Doesn't that make me a terrible parent if that's what I do? It makes me an awful parent to look out front, see my kids in the street, and go, man, I hope that works out well for them. No, what makes me a loving parent is to go outside and go, Come here. Don't play in the street. Do you see that dead squirrel over there with the smashed flat head? Do you want to be like that? Is that in, a, in the same way, you would be wise men and women to invite other men and women to look out for those blind spots and to engage you over them. You need to invite it, I think, so that when it happens, you can be reminded that you invited it, right? Otherwise, I don't know if you'll be able to hear it. I think in the last 10 years, have been maybe five instances where people I have allowed to guard over my life have sat me down and pointed out things, some things in my life. To this day, I've never received a well, right? My first reaction is always, you know, a well, well I think you're just dumb. You are literally the worst, you know? But that's love, isn't it? That God would so love me that he would show someone who loves me an inconsistency in my life. To have people love you enough to engage you over a misstep is important. And it's important for you to invite it in because I don't, 
I don't receive that stuff well from people I don't know. So hate what is evil. But that's not all that community does. So, Because what's the next line? Cling to what is good. So community isn't just us running around uh, with whistles in our mouths calling, ready to call fouls on, a, on a, other people. You know, how miserable would that be? Who would want to be a part of that? So, so we don't only hate what is evil, but we encourage one another. We push one another to hold fast to what is good. Let me give you a couple verses here. I love Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another, another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So I love the kind of the, pre, the premeditation of this verse. Let us consider. Let us let me think about how I might encourage those I interact with to love and good deeds. Which means the command of my life is uh, I'm to think on how I might encourage those I interact with throughout the week. How I might stir them up. How I might push them toward love and good deeds. Proverbs 10.11 says, uh, the beginning says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. I want to be a man who speaks life into the people around me. You know, the people who I walk with. And I'm not saying I do this well. This is something that I'm working on. But I want to, um, you know, but I want, I want to point out things they do well. Uh, I want to encourage them to be brave and bold in things that they maybe they're timid about. I want to engage them, encourage them, and walk with them faithfully in their lives. Because true community not only hates what, it e- what is evil, but it pushes towards and encourages holding fast to what is good. So let's read back in Romans, Romans twelve ten. Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Now this is a bit problematic, isn't if we're honest. Because aren't there people who love Jesus who get on your nerves? Don't point at anybody right now. Are we to be devoted in love to them too? Are we to honor them above ourselves? What do we do with that? I believe that love for men and women is is stirred up not by your will, your might, or what you understand to be right and wrong. I think love for brothers and sisters in Christ is stirred up in a realization of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Since that's the foundation upon which everything is built in our relationships. My understanding of God's loving of me, despite me, enables me to love others despite others. Okay, and, and then once love sets in, honor actually becomes kind of a fun game. I think you know some translations actually say outdo one another in honor, like make it a competition. Right? How can I be about you? How can I consider you better than me? How can I serve my brothers and sisters? It goes back to week one where we said that glorifying God frees you from this being about you and sets you free to serve others. And then let's look at the next line. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. I love that last line. The energy and the vitality that we have to uh, to love on, to encourage, to engage, to walk with others is rooted in our relationships, with, with our relationship with Jesus. You'll never be able to extend 
that type of patience, love, and grace to people until you have experienced those things from Jesus. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, a couple years ago, I probably would have broken these into three different sections. Uh, But I think these three ideas are so interwoven that if you pull one of them out, it doesn't work. If you make them stand alone, it doesn't work. I am rejoicing in hope. So regardless of current situation, current reality, regardless of how difficult or how uh, great it is, my rejoicing is in the hope I have of what God is doing in the future. So this body I have, that you have, it's giving away, isn't it? Some of you can say amen louder than others, right? If you're in your 20s, you, don't, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But in, in just a f- few years, you'll be with us. Um, you, you'll still feel like you can do everything that you used to. Like your mind will say, oh yeah, I can still drive the basket or sprint to catch that frisbee. But it will just feel wrong when you try it. <laughs> right? I don't know what happens. But this body, no matter how well you take care of it, It's going to grow tired. It's going to grow weak. And Ecclesiastes says, if you live long enough, there will be a day where you will wake up frustrated you're still alive. Right? Being honest. Growing old is not for the faint of heart. So you have a rejoicing in hope. What's my hope? I got a a brand new body coming. Right? There's going to be a day on earth where there's no more memorials, no more remembrances, no tragedies, No more cancer, no more sickness, no sore throats, no headaches, no heartburn, no terrorist attacks, no anger or tears. Those things simply cease to be. And it's in that hope that I'm rejoicing. So now I'm patient in tribulation. My future is secure, and he will be all I need for today. So I I don't feel like I can say this enough. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that it's all going to go perfectly for you, okay? You can love Jesus, you can follow Jesus and pursue him with your whole heart and still have things not go the way you want them to go. The Bible's filled with this, so I don't, I don't know why it's so surprising to people. This should not surprise you, right? John the Baptist was called by Jesus the greatest born of women, okay? How did things end up for him? He got beheaded in prison because a stripper requested his head. Right? What about Moses? You know, his ministry was 40 years in the desert with grumbling, complaining people. And then God finally took him up on the mountain, parted the clouds, and said, Behold the promised land. But I'm going to kill you here, and Joshua's going to take him in. You know, these are things people don't really want to point out because, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's hard to build a large church when you point that stuff out. But I'd rather be prepared, you be prepared for the sorrow and suffering of life that you might learn to be patient in tribulation. Because God, he's got it. He has this. And then when you're patient in tribulation and rejoicing in hope, you're constant in prayer. Uh, If you're not rejoicing in hope, then I don't know how you can be patient in tribulation. Because patience means you're waiting for something. So without rejoicing in hope, 
I don't know if you can be patient in tribulation. And if you're, you're not patient in tribulation, then you know, what, are you, what are we praying about? You see, these, these things are, are woven together. You can't separate them out. So we walk with one another through these peaks and valleys. We encourage one another and we remind one another of God's faithfulness. That's why Hebrews 10 says it's not, not to neglect, neglect gathering. Why? So that you might encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day that we're rejoicing in, hoping in, looking forward to. And then look how this ends. Verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. On a whole, few of us have the kind of the type of needs that are life and death, material needs now. Um, And yet verses like this kind of take us to that material, physical, you know, know, kind of thing. So what I want to encourage you is this. The bulk of our needs today is not material, all right, but rather spiritual. As I was growing up, uh, no one was concerned about your self-esteem, all right, and and everyone could beat you. A teacher could beat you. Uh, Some random dude at the grocery store could whip you. Nobody's calling anybody. People would cheer them on. Now, when I was in high school, something shifted, all right, and I haven't studied it enough to know what happened, but all of a sudden, there was this uh, grave concern for the self-esteem of children, and he began to set different tracks for learning, and there was this the birth of the gifted and talented class. Uh, and the thought behind it was this. These um, ignorant folks are holding down the best and the brightest, so we should pull them out, let those dummies color, and teach these guys calculus. And it's, it's social evolution. We'll, you know, we'll work in the fast food industry. They can go on to run whatever needs to be run. That's what happened. They're gifted and talented. What's that make me? Not gifted and talented. What classes can I take? You can take counting. That's math for you. Right? So un- unfortunately, some of this idea seeped into the church. And we have this idea that there's these levels of Christianity, which Bruce was talking about earlier. There's no levels. We have this idea that when you hit varsity, you don't mingle with the people who aren't there yet because they'll slow you down. They're not as gifted as you. They don't understand what you understand. They're not as serious about pursuing the things of the Lord as you are. And you begin, begin to create these levels. But here's, here's the problem. Levels in Christianity are only possible if they're built on your righteousness. But since it's not built on your righteousness, the playing field is level. There are no gifted and talented classes in the kingdom. So let me show you why. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So you and I have a responsibility to engage those who are less mature than we are. How do we engage? According to the scripture, through hospitality. We invite them into our lives. Uh, We don't make vague prayer requests to mature people for immature people. We engage the more immature people because they are our brothers and our sisters. They have been purchased by Christ just like we have. And we, at one time, were them. And somebody extended grace to us. Somebody engaged us. Somebody walked with us. And somebody taught us how quick we are to take the grace of God and make it about what we've done rather than about what he's done. Are you your brother's keeper? Yeah, you are. Absolutely. So how do we engage less mature? Hospitality. 
we open up our homes, we open up our lives, and we even reveal and share our own weaknesses. As we remember what it's like to be wobbly when we walk. Right? We didn't have, always have strong legs. We weren't always as confident as we are now. You, you don't hem that up and celebrate it with other people who are as strong as you. You spread that out. You engage and walk with others who aren't as strong as you. <clears throat> so to end here, how does this work here at the fellowship? There are two pieces here. Uh, one's on us and the other is on you. Okay? The piece on us is this. The, the elders here are we're tasked with identifying, training, and releasing mature men and women who can facilitate, engage, and grow community biblically. That's our role. Your role is to make that a priority and to engage. Unfortunately, where we are in the world, tons of us confuse going to church with belonging to a church. Those are not the same thing. Going to a church is not a biblical idea. Belonging to a covenant community is. Ultimately, this needs to be something that has a priority in your life. I'm guessing that you're here because you want to mature in your faith. Your attendance on Sunday can only be a beginning and a boost during the week. Our faith plays out day by day, not just on a Sunday morning service. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're unknown. You cannot mature in your faith in isolation. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. It was, de- was not designed to be private. You were designed to be interwoven, to need one another for maturity, to sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron, to encourage, to rebuke, to edify, to comfort, to show hospitality, and to walk with each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for these men and women. I pray that you would stir up our hearts to belonging. That you would stir up our hearts to know you. I pray that our love for you might lead to love for one another. I ask you to do this because we have, we have a tendency to isolate and to go within ourselves and to not reach out and engage others. So I pray that community here would deepen and that you would Enable us to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, that great day. It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.